This is a special presentation from ABC News, America Remembers. Reporting from the Mount Soledad National Veterans Memorial in San Diego, here is ABC's Alex Stone. This site has been called San Diego's national treasure, a controversial one, many years of fights over the big white cross here on what was public land, this site overlooking the beauty of San Diego, a city rich in military history. On this mountain, looking down on the fog coming into San Diego, surrounded by bright yellow wildflowers. This memorial is different than most because it honors veterans who are living and gone from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Around me here, granite plaques are etched with the images and stories of veterans who served in the five branches of the military, plus the merchant marines in World War II. Flags whipping in the wind and that solid large white cross in the middle. This is a solemn site where people come year-round to pay their respects, to remember. In this hour, we're going to tell the stories of those who served and how their service impacted the country, their families, and themselves. This year marks a date that elicits all kinds of emotions for those who served and those who lost loved ones. It was 20 years ago the Iraq War started. In 2003, the first airstrikes and troop movement into Iraq began. Good evening, everyone. The United States had a busy day today attacking Iraq. It was the beginning of an eight-year battle, a show of American might moving into the country. 4,000 U.S. servicemen and women would die over many years. Many more were left with life-altering injuries. On my orders. Coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. Countless American families have stories of loss and heroism that came from their family members fighting in Iraq. But combat did not end on the battlefield. And these two decades later, some of those who served still have the scars, both physically and mentally, from their time in battle. Yeah, my name is Stephen Padilla. I'm a San Diego native and uh, Iraq combat vet. I met Stephen Padilla at his home in the San Diego area. He's one of the many who returned from Iraq changed. So this medal, my Army Combination Medal, is actually the one I got in Iraq just before we left. He has spent years dealing with the often hidden scars of war in the form of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which has plagued so many veterans. Veterans. He entered the military to save his life, and he would come out fighting to save it. So my beginning is really rocky. I made a bunch of bad choices, ended up being homeless for a while, uh, living under lifeguard towers, couch surfing. Um, and during that time, my brother had already joined the Army in 2003, my twin brother. And he was in Korea. And then in 2006, he came home from Iraq. He could see change for the better in his brother. He had a sense of duty and drive. That led Padilla to decide he too wanted to serve. When I tell my story, I always preface that life is about choices and second chances. And because my brother inspired me to do something, uh, I just asked him, what is it going to take? Went to a recruiter, told him, hey, what do I got to do? Okay, you got to lose some weight. I'm like, okay, you got to stop drinking so much. All right. Um, do you, you know, do you have a GD? Yep. Do you have any, you know, did you have a DUI? I was like, yes, I do. So we have to get that cleared up. Entering the military like so many young men and women, he thought it would be glamorous and Rambo style cool. One of the jobs that they showed me was a combat engineer. And during that time, my brother was in country. He was living in uh, Colorado. I go, hey man, I'm gonna join the army. He goes, well, what job are you gonna do? I was like, well, I'm, I'm thinking about combat engineer. He goes, don't do it. I was like, why? Why did do you have any idea what it was at that point? No, like they showed us this video of like it a bunch. Cool, right? Yeah, like well, the video was like a bunch of dudes stacking on a door, kicking it open, then blowing stuff up. I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Sapper tab, all this. I remember, I was like, that is not going to happen to you, because he was an MP. He, you know, he had already been there. He knew what was going on. At a time of war, from training to combat was quick, quicker than Padilla could have ever imagined. From a young man trying to remake his life to being on patrol looking for IEDs in Iraq was in the blink of an eye. He arrived in the sergeant's office at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. The next thing he tells me, he goes, are you ready to go to war? We are deploying either in December or January. And I'm like, I just got here. Like, I'm freaking out. I'm like, we're going to leave in like three months. We're going to go do the job that we were training for. Did you feel like you were ready? Hell no. No way. No Even way was I ready. Moment, you knew. I was freaking out. 
I was like, what am I doing here? Like, I have no clue what I'm going to do. It wasn't long before Padilla was saddled up in a convoy in full desert camo with his gear on, on patrol at all hours of the day and night with his fellow soldiers in the heart of the battle. Our main job was going to look for roadside bombs. Had nothing do, nothing to do with being an MP, doing hearts and minds and meeting the, the, the people. We were clearing roads for other patrols to go through and make it to their, their destinations. Night after night, his team was out looking for improvised explosive devices, IEDs, responding when somebody would alert the Americans that they saw one hidden on a road. His job was to hunt down the bomb without triggering it by driving over it and to get rid of it. You have to focus on now and not focus on what's going on home because there were guys there there were, you know, their their spouses were cheating on them, family members died. And if your head's over here while you're looking for roadside bombs, you're going to miss the details that show you like, oh, that was a patch of dead grass or oh, that rock wasn't there. It was one of those patrols that would change Padilla's life forever. He had just come back from leave and to reacclimate, his lieutenant assigned him to sit in a vehicle in the rear of the convoy. Normally, he sat in the lead vehicle. On this night, another soldier, last name Morgan, took his spot in the lead. We got a report that there was an IED at a specific grid point. Cool, we're going to go. It's up by like an IP, an Iraqi police station. For quite a while, they searched for it. He says the Iraqi police officers at checkpoints were acting strangely. They were getting a weird read off the locals around them. They went up and down a road and couldn't find it. And then... All you hear is over the radio from Sergeant Bland, who's the truck commander, go, There it is! And then just... Boom, just blew up the whole side of the truck. Comms went down. Everybody's like, we. everybody in the trucks did what they're supposed to do. They pulled a cord on. You know, they made security movements. Uh, one truck pulled up next to the, the non-bomb side to check for secondaries. Another one pulled up behind and one, like, kind of in front to provide the security. Once we did the secondary clearances, then, you know, we kind of all moved in to get the guys out because we weren't hearing nothing. And when you walked up to it, it looked like the entire truck had been shot by a shotgun. The men inside were badly injured, including Morgan, who was sitting where Padilla always sat. And so we, you know, pulled everyone out, put them into my truck, and then we were, we had to pull it and it was a long night. They made repeated calls over the radio for help, but nobody came. They slowly pulled the badly damaged vehicle and carried the badly injured soldiers back to their base. Morgan lived, but was never the same. That should have been me. That night would start a chain of events that would create a new struggle for Padilla to live. And it was small things, you know. Uh, first, you know, I started drinking heavily. Like, and people tend to think, Alcoholism is an everyday drinker, you know, getting blacked out. No, it's binge drinking also. So I'm drinking a handle of Jack Daniels like every weekend, just polishing off those big bottles. And there, was, there came a point where my buddy's mom found me in my car sleeping like halfway out, halfway in. He was back from Iraq. He did his time. While he was there, he stayed focused. But it was a spinal cord injury that needed surgery that sent him home and out of the military. It was clear, though, Padilla was not okay. He was suffering silently like so many veterans returning from war. I was married. You know, we got married in April 2010. And my wife's like, you know, you're drinking a lot. You get angry with me. I was never physical with her, but it was always verbal arguments. I was a mean a-hole. And she, at one point, she's like, you know, if you don't get help, this isn't going to work. And it was, you know, 2012. I was like, okay, cool. I was like, all right, like, I'll, I'll look for something. And so at that time, I went to the VA, and they're like, well, we don't really have anything. He was haunted by thoughts about Morgan, the soldier who took his spot in the convoy and was hit by the roadside bomb, feeling guilt that Morgan was in his spot that night. Those are all questions that I always think about. You know, he was holding his son, and he was having a hard time because, like, he was hunched over and stuff and just didn't look, it would look painful, not natural. So I'm like, dude, did I take something away from him? And like we, we tend to talk about, you know, uh, survivor's guilt, you know, as someone that's actually lost a living life. But at the same time, it's survivor's guilt. Like that should have been me. I should have that life that, you know, Morgan had, you know, rather than me doing, you know, taking, doing better now. Padilla had PTSD. Help for veterans suffering in 2012, he says, was hard to find. And I was, you know, sat there one night just with my gun and thought about eating a bullet. Um, but I don't know what stopped me. It just was, it just, I was like, do I really, 
Like what happens? Like the question of what happens afterwards? He found a therapist who did several types of therapy, including recording him telling his story. Then he would listen to it over and over again to desensitize his emotions. I started doing it and I started noticing that I was not as angry, short tempered. Um, I was not being hyper vigilant because, you know, in California, you can't, you can't carry a weapon. So I was like, had a knife in my backpack, had a knife in my car, had a, you know, always looking for the exit. You know, I had, you know, first aid, like always just trying to figure out what I would have to do if something happened. Um, you know, alcohol was still, you know, very much involved. Um, until then, I was just like, you know, then I started slowing down. He began joining organizations like the VFW and Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. At the time, they were pushing for the Clay Hunt Suicide Prevention Act. That hit home for him. He joined in the fight. Clay Hunt was a veteran and a humanitarian who served in Iraq and took his own life. The act named after him set up mental health care and more services at the VA for members of the military. The, the bill was passed and I was invited to go watch President Obama sign the law. And at that moment, I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be an advocate. I want to, I want to, you know, doing things locally were great, but being able to affect millions was just my calling at the time. Padilla stood right behind President Obama as a Clay Hunt Act was signed into law. He showed me pictures from that day. Um, but that's me. In, that's you in the White House. Yeah. In the, that's one of the libraries just before the men's bathroom. Were you pinching yourself a little bit? You were standing could, in the White I, House? I still can't believe I was there. Like, it all seems like a dream because it's like you put in this effort and this work about this movement and about this bill that could change lives and it also changed your life. But you never think you would get there. You were, you always feel like you're running on this treadmill, like I'm running towards somewhere, but I'm never really going to get there. And then you get there, you're going, what the heck am I doing here? He was making real change. He was at the White House, increasing mental health resources at the VA. But secretly, Padilla was still suffering. His battle was not over. But the problem is, is people that do things like that aren't good at taking their own advice. <laughs> So I was still struggling with alcohol. He was appearing publicly and taking phone calls from desperate members of the military who were on the verge of suicide, talking them into getting help. But he was still going through therapy for his PTSD and he was still suffering. We are really good at masking. That's the one problem veterans have. And we're really good at masking of how we're truly feeling. And that's where we need to become vulnerable, but we're just it's just beaten into us that everything's okay, drink water, move on, change your socks. I could be surrounded by 20 of my family members and feel so alone, just disconnected. Just, so it was really weird, you know, doing all these amazing things and I still didn't really, like at one point you didn't feel nothing. Like all the, like, oh, you're doing great work. You're like, am I? Like, am I? Because I'm still a mess myself. It's been an internal battle. While working for the veterans' mental health nonprofit Headstrong, he took advantage of the therapy they offered. And Padilla says today he's doing much better and is a voice for veterans who need help. It's about the tools that we have in the shed that we can utilize to work on ourselves continuously. It's, it's going to be a consistent battle. I have to check myself consistently. Like, like, hey, why are you being snappy? Like, why are you being angry? Like, why are you, you know, disconnecting? Why are you, you know, all these things, dehuman, dehumanizing yourself to, you know, what, nothing, a wallet, or what? So, um, when, while working at Headstrong, I was just like, you know, can I, myself, as a consultant, utilize the program? They're like, absolutely. It was that therapy, he says, that changed his life yet again. We addressed the root issue the root problem of the traumatic event. Rather than just making me numb to it, we treated it in a fashion where I could cope with what happened and allow me to kind of move on. Like I will always remember it, it'll always be a part of me, but the after effects aren't so detrimental to me and my family to where the, there's no looming question over my head of, will I still be a part of this family? Today, Padilla and his wife have two beautiful children. He's working toward his MBA. He's a motivational speaker and a recruiter for a large firm. After all these things, like you're like, this is more than a second chance. This is like this third, fourth, fifth, but you have to start at the second chance. So the belief that we can all change with one chance, it all comes from one good choice, turns into another, another, another. But he says after all of it, being a dad of two children with autism is the biggest reward. Over there we had to, you know, accept our deaths and be prepared to die. And that ended up making us lose our a piece of my humanity, or at least mine at least. Um, I thought I lost it forever, you know. I will tell you, <clears throat>
at least my kids, but I've dealt with other kids with autism and special needs. The amount of love they can show you, it just, it makes you believe in things again. Um, makes, makes you feel things that you, you know, thought you would let go. So, you know, I thought I could never love as much. I would never be able to be as emotional as I used to be. Like, now I'm like crying at Disney movies. <laughs> so weird. If you're a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line to receive 24-7 confidential support. You don't have to be enrolled in VA benefits or health care. Dial 988 and press 1. You can chat online at veteranscrisisline.net or text 838-255. In the U.S. today, there are over 16 million veterans, about 6% of the overall population according to the Census Bureau over one million men and women have died serving this country since the Civil War. But since 9-11, among those who deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, the Census Bureau says over 7,000 Americans have died in combat. Not all military personnel enlist for the same reason. We have a portrait now of someone whose struggle with his own identity led him to service. And that service during wartime brought its own challenges. Here's ABC's John Capitaneus with the story of a veteran who learned that art could help him heal. You know, growing up as a scared gay black kid in the South, I would never be the hero. Why can't the gay black boy be a hero? Why? For so many veterans, the wounds of war carry over far beyond the battlefield. There were times I walked down the streets in New York City screaming and crying to the top of my lungs, snot running down my nose, tears running down my eyes, and then nobody would even ask me, am I okay? My name is Omar Columbus. I'm an Air Force veteran. Uh, I served with diplomas for Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom. I served on active duty for 12 years. Tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in a small coastal town in Eastern North Carolina called Washington, North Carolina. And when I was born in 1976, let me get my little notebook. Um, the population was approximately 8,489 people back in 1976. And as of the most recent census, it was about, it's about 9,400 and some people approximately. That seems like the type of place where everybody knows each other. Yes, on Sundays, Nine out of 10 households were at church on Sunday morning when I grew up. So it's one of those very conservative religious towns. Kind of separate yet unequal. When you drive into my town, you have, coming in, you have the white folks graveyard on one side of the road and the black folks graveyard on the other side of the road. We still don't get buried together. When did you know you wanted to serve in the military? I didn't. I just, I had no interest in being in the military at first because I just wasn't, I never thought I was cut out for it. I wasn't athletic. I wasn't strong. I wasn't super gung-ho patriotic or anything. I looked at it as I'm the oldest of three, raised by a single mother. So it's like uh, I had to do something. So that was the reason I ended up enlisting was because I had to do something. What is the experience for you having been in a combat zone? Feeling like, honestly, that America forgets about you. Or I'll never forget um, when President Bush, he said, we're about to go and strike Iraq. And I'll never forget, those, that was the breaking news. And also, the very next news segment was, who's going to win American Idol, Fantasia or Diana? And I'm here risking my life and yet most Americans are more interested in American Idol than what we're over here doing. And that was challenging. Omar saw deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, but it was coming home that became the major challenge. How are you at this time coping with all of these various, beyond stresses, all these various traumas and 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 pains and hurts on yourself, on your identity as a person. It's a journey. It's all been a journey. It's all been a journey of just self-discovery, self-acceptance. I mean, I left North Carolina. Main reason I joined the military because I was gay. I'm gay and I was terrified. 
I mean, I spent my entire life in the closet, then joined the military and served for 12 years on the Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And, you know, and going to war and being in the country where like, <laughs> so all of these experiences compounding on hiding who I was, trying to be everything that the Air Force wanted me to be. It wasn't easy and I was ashamed a lot, ashamed of who I was. If you haven't noticed by listening to Omar speak, he's a creative person. Before long, he turned to art to find his voice. What what stories did you feel like you could tell through your performing, through your photography that you couldn't tell before? Well, now, um, like through my poetry, it allows me to say, I'm scared. It allows me to say, I have nightmares. It allows me to say, I'm gay. It allows me to say, this happened to me. So through art, I found other outlets that allow me to calm, cope, and soothe myself that weren't destructive. Because I'll tell you, I open up my medicine cabinet every day and headaches, sweaty palms, nightmares, all of these things are side effects of medication. Uh, the side effects that come with art, zero. Before we ended our conversation, Omar wanted to share a poem with me, with all of you. It's quite long, so we can't play it all, but we think the moments you'll hear will resonate. And this is my poem. I, it's entitled, Camouflaged Heart. War makes humans human. Conflict is universal. Battles rage as mankind ages, yet never learns from past mistakes or stories from those who live to tell of what war remains, a living hell. Still, dreams of war knock at my door. I try not to let them in. Comrades did not make it back alive. <sighs> Hyperventilating, my nightmares evolve into daymares. And yes, I'm still in pain. You just can't see it. Only a camouflaged heart remains. Tell us what you're feeling, sharing something so vulnerable, so personal. Honestly, it's, it's nervous and nervous about sharing my story, but still at the same time confident that it needs to be heard. It's worthy of being heard. If I can just help one other person, one other veteran, hold on and be inspired, try art, uh, find ways of expression, I win. You know, that I didn't give up, that I didn't end my life. I win. That I wake up every morning and believe in myself first before I walk out into a world that I feel that doesn't believe in me as a black man, as a gay man, as a veteran. I win. I win. People visit Arlington National Cemetery to pay respects, to contemplate the cost of war, to understand history. Section 60 is where the dead from the United States wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are buried. ABC's Erin Katursky introduces us now to a gold star mom who finds comfort in the regular visits to her son's resting place in Section 60 at Arlington. I know at one time they called this cemetery the Living Cemetery because so many young people here. Paula Davis still comes every Sunday, as she has since her only son, Justin Davis, was killed. You say, wow, you know, who, who still remembers but other than family and co close family and friends? As in all of Arlington, each headstone in Section 60 tells a story. Private First Class Justin Davis was a 19-year-old infantryman when he was killed in Afghanistan June 25, 2006. It's comforting for me to come here and just sit and, you know, it helps keep life in perspective for me. This is my Arlington bag, and this bag was his um, bag in school, in high oh, school. Wow. 
<laughs> Can you believe it? Held up. You've got all sorts of supplies in there. It's my Arlington bag. It's got scissors. It's got pictures. It's got tape. Each week, Paula tidies her son's headstone. She makes sure there's a laminated photo of him and flowers. Yeah, this is my little routine. Trim the grass. Trim the grass. Clean the picture off. And like I said, I do it for me. I just, you know, this is my way of remembering him and honoring him. And he didn't even like flowers. <laughs> so they stink. <laughs> She'll pause every now and again to look at her son's picture. Oh, it's just like, that's how I remember him. Had he lived, Justin would be in his mid-30s now. Big, magnetic smile. I haven't seen that, haven't gotten a hug, haven't heard that baritone voice. He wanted to be an infantryman. said, why would you do that? You're my only kid. You know, he could not be deterred, and I tried. <laughs> I tried. So in the end, I, you know, I supported him. And, um, you know, he had no regrets once he got in. He had no regrets. Do you still remember the knock at the door? I didn't get a knock at the door. In June 2006, Paula Davis was on a business trip in Wyoming when a relative called saying someone from the Army wanted to speak with her. A casualty assistance officer found her in a hotel lobby. I was sitting there, and I remember uh, this guy in his Class A's, and I said, I'm Paula Davis. I'm Justin Davis's mother. And he said, Miss Davis... United States, I don't know if he said military or army, is sorry. And it just became, no, no. Justin Davis died fighting with the 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan's Korangal Valley, known as the Valley of Death, because four dozen U.S. service members had been killed there before the U.S. pulled out in 2010. You think back of what I could have done maybe to stop him or deter him. You know, I supported him. I didn't like it, but I supported him. And now this is your life. And now this is my life, and I don't like it. But I learned how to deal with it, come to terms with it. You know, people say, oh, you go to the cemetery, you got to move on. And I said, well, I'm not, I have moved forward. It's not that, you know, I'm not here wallowing on the ground. For me, it just helps me to deal with my reality. Coming here is better therapy. For me. For you. Yes. For me, it's just everything. It helps me keep things in perspective. And I think it helps ground me in reality. And it helps me to come here and meditate and and reflect. This is, this is my life now. Do you ever think you'll stop coming here? It's hard to say. It's, it's still hard. And so she comes, with her scissors and her flowers and camp chair, shoes off in the sun, to visit with her boy, filled with more pride than pain. But both sentiments inhabit the space between Arlington's symmetrical lines of headstones that are dedicated to those who, as Lincoln said, gave the last full measure to preserve, protect, and defend the American democracy. We honor military personnel who died in service of their country on Memorial Day. We also remember all who served, including their families. Here now is ABC's Christopher Watson with a very personal recollection of when his own father went off to war. I don't remember when I was told my dad was going to Vietnam. It's always seemed odd to me that I have no memory of that moment. You'd think being told that your dad's going off to war would make an indelible impression. But I was nine years old, and Vietnam was just a word, really. We all knew there was a war there, of course. You couldn't be a kid living on a military base in the early 70s and not know at least that. I do remember when Dad left for Vietnam, April 27, 1971, a Tuesday, two days after his 37th birthday. I remember being sad. My two sisters and I complained that we didn't want to go to school that day, but Mom said we had to. Only later did I imagine how difficult that had to have been for her consoling her children on the night before her husband went off to war, the last night she'd spend with him for a year, or maybe forever. Dad spent the first three months of that year in Da Nang and the remainder at Tonsonut Air Base just outside of Saigon. Mom wrote him 25-page letters at the dinette table almost every day, the envelopes bulging like pillows. She baked him chocolate chip cookies by the pound. We kids recorded Dad's favorite country albums on an old GE cassette player the size of a shoebox, propped against the console stereo speaker, careful not to make any noise and spoil the recording. A letter from Dad was like Christmas. Mom would read them to us. 
There was always an individual message for each of us kids, and more than a few pages that Mom would set aside without sharing, after pausing to scan them silently. I remember the day Dad came home, April 16, 1972, a Sunday. Mom drove the hour to Raleigh-Durham Airport in the big 68 Pontiac Catalina, all of us dressed in our church clothes. We watched the stairs roll up to the plane, the door opened, and then out came Dad. He spotted us immediately through the terminal glass and waved, grinning. I remember being surprised by how much thinner he was and how gray his hair was, silver on both sides. It hadn't been when he left. The first thing Dad did was crush Mom in his arms and kiss her like I'd never seen him do before. And young as I was, that's the moment I first understood that they had a life together that didn't include us kids. Dad didn't say a word to me about Vietnam until five years later, the summer of 77. I was 15, contemplating my future, thinking about the military. Maybe that's why he finally shared stories, unprompted, every afternoon for a week. Some were funny or bawdy, some cautionary, some heartbreaking, a few of them frightening, like lying under his bunk the first night there, helmet and flak jacket on, as shells exploded just yards from his hooch, thinking, he told me, what the hell am I doing here? He was serving, fulfilling an oath, while his wife did the same back home. Dad retired from the military the next year at the rank of Chief Master Sergeant after two years in the Army and 22 in the Air Force. Proud to have served, he always said, though Vietnam left him with questions. None he shared, beyond that single admission to me, nor did he talk much about his time there after that. I don't think he avoided it. He was doing his job, and that job was done. And I miss him every day. Grateful for what he taught me, proud of who he was, and to be his son. Thankful he got to come home. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. This is a special presentation from ABC News, America Remembers. Reporting from the Mount Soledad National Veterans Memorial in San Diego, here is ABC's Alex Stone. This is a site of stories, stories of sacrifice. In the beauty of this memorial, the stories of those who lived defending freedom. The names and images etched into the granite walls honoring those who served some who died while doing it, from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. The glistening Pacific Ocean in front of me, wildflowers and birds all around, were high above a mountain overlooking San Diego. This site brought years of controversy over the giant white cross on what was public land. It was a fight that was appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Today, the white cross remains here on land owned by an association. And like so many who come here to do, in the next hour, we honor those who served. Memorial Day is meant to honor fallen servicemen and women who made the ultimate sacrifice. It can be a tough day for the loved ones left behind, especially Gold Star moms who lost a child to war. ABC's Derek Dennis introduces us to one mom who has turned her pain into a purpose. 
Like most airports, Philadelphia International is busy, bustling with travelers flying in and out. Adults traveling solo, families with small children, members of the military. Comes in handy, uh, yeah, all, everywhere we go. Like 28-year-old Air Force Sergeant Brandon Bedard, deploying with his wife and two toddlers to Spain. Grateful for designated corner suite in the airport, a special place for members only to sit, get something free to eat. We have breakfast made, we make dinners. And relax before a long trip overseas. <laughs> You're able to bring the kids in and relax and uh, get some energy out before getting on the next flight. And for every departure, there are arrivals. And sadly, some travelers are filled with grief over the loss of a loved one. I don't think half the America thinks about the military families. For every person that enlists, there's usually a significant other. There's probably kids. 75-year-old Diane Hammond from Pittman, New Jersey, is a USO volunteer working inside Philly Airport's United Service Organization Center, a private haven tucked away in Terminal B, catering to military officers, their families, and their children, some who may be just passing through. Coffee's on 24-7. Can't run a USO without coffee. Thousands of travelers a year flying in, specifically because the airport is close to Dover Air Force Base about 70 miles away where the military's dignified transfer of remains is handled, respectfully honoring fallen service members coming home after dying overseas, giving their lives for our country. Diane is here for family support during the worst time of their lives. Some, she says, can't even speak. They don't. I mean, they, they, they're, they're inside themselves thinking about their son or their daughter that they're never going to see again. They really don't know where they're going or how they're going to get there. Sadly, Diane is perfect for the job. Because I know what they're going through, but I know what that knock on the door did to them. It destroyed their life. It turned their life into a nightmare. Because it did for you. It did for me, right, exactly. A gold star mom herself, she lost her son, 28-year-old Army Ranger Sergeant Alessandro Sandrino Plutino, in Afghanistan on August 8, 2011, his picture front and center in a locket close to her heart. Yes, this is my baby boy, my pride and joy. Handsome little devil looks just like his daddy. Yeah. She says Sandrino's battalion was on a mission to back up the one that killed Osama bin Laden. Sandrino died in the continuing combat. And uh, I got to talk to him. I talked to him probably about two hours before he was killed. Diane learning of her loss with an early morning military knock at the door. It was every mom's worst nightmare. Every mom's worst nightmare. I mean, it just doesn't get any worse than that at all especially since Diane spent years trying to convince Sandrino not to enlist. I could have chopped off his legs. Maybe, I don't know. There was no stopping him. Starting in high school, Sandrino's dream was to serve. A shoulder injury on the wrestling team became a hurdle, but not a hindrance. Diane finally saying okay. Before he left, you know, he came in and sat on the side of the bed. And he goes, you know, Ma, I, I, I know you're worried about me. I know that I might get hurt. Or, you know, I might get shot or I could die. He said, but, you know, only God knows when he's going to take me home. When God's ready for me, he'll take me. That's what Sandrino, that's what he believed. His death was and is so hard for Diane. But after a few years of grieving Sandrino, she was introduced to the work of the USO and was asked to become a volunteer. And I just think there's... A need for me here, a place for me to be here. Greeting servicemen and women and their families, some of them living the same nightmare she did. They all say, you know, do you want to tell me about your son or your daughter? Or some of them will say yes, some of them will say no. It's all on them. You just have to step back. The USO operates more than 250 locations worldwide, either at or near military installations, some in combat zones overseas and in airport centers across the U.S. Welcome to Philadelphia USO. Offering hospitality for traveling service members and their families. I love it, to be honest, yeah. 27-year-old Jose Sanchez just enlisted. Originally from the Dominican Republic, we found him on his way to Army National Guard basic training in South Carolina. You're going to have to create your own, own profile. Yeah, That's what you're going to have to do, okay? Waiting in the USO suite at the Philly airport. Nervous, to be honest. 
but a little bit ready. I can say I'm ready. For Diane, seeing these service members or their families, no matter how they come, brings her own grief flooding back. It has gotten a little bit easier, yes. I mean, the further away from death you are, you know, it does get a little bit easier. But it's not, I mean, it always brings it up, though. It always brings it up. And as you might imagine, Memorial Day is difficult. Memorial Day is going to start my summer of discontent because you have Memorial Day, which is when people remember that there are military people who served and died. And then you have Fourth of July when everybody's patriotic and it's rah-rah. Then there's August when Sandrino was born, when Sandrino was engaged, when Sandrino was going to get married, and when Sandrino was killed and when he was buried. So that's August for me. It's like, I just want to cover up and stay like this. But volunteering at the USO gives Diane a sense of purpose, especially on a holiday honoring those who fought and died. It's a day to remember. It's a day not just remember Sandrino, but remember everybody that serves this great country. I mean, it's important. Even if it means she cries with the very family she's there to comfort. We, we cry together. We cry together. You just tell them, and you, you, it'll be different, it'll change. And I know right now it's the blackest time in your life and you think you're never gonna come out of that hole, but you will. In the 20 years since the Iraq war started, the pains of battle have not stayed in Iraq or Afghanistan. They were carried home by the men and women who served. For some, the trauma of war has created two decades of mental anguish. Even though the U.S. is no longer a country at war, the scars of the battle are still being experienced. At the Veterans Affairs Aspire Center in San Diego, an effort is underway now to help those who are suffering. This is the sound of a wood lathe. Veterans who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan are on the patio here at the VA's Aspire Center learning how to craft wood. He's teaching them how to do that pen. So what's he making right there? He's making a pen. He's making his own center. A lot of your pens have uh, metal or, or plastic centers. We're teaching them how to make them with the wood. Volunteers come to teach woodworking, one of the many lessons being taught to veterans who are living here receiving treatment. Um, it's our gym. Um, so. We have veterans can come and work out here anytime. Dr. Carl Rimley is a chief of Aspire Center, a 40-bed complex where veterans who have served mainly in Iraq and Afghanistan can get mental health care, often due to post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, from what they experienced in battle. This program was designed uh, primarily to serve veterans who are at risk of homelessness or homeless, but who also have severe PTSD that's not resolved. Um, since uh, from outpatient treatment. At risk of homelessness can mean a husband or a wife saying the veteran can't be at home anymore because of their anger or alcoholism. Aspire Center opened in 2014, seen at the time as an innovative way of helping younger veterans get treatment for PTSD. It's a sort of complete city inside of the walls of the 30,000 square foot building where veterans learn to get their lives back. The first couple of months is how to learn to live as part of a community. I think it would probably be much cheaper to provide each of the elements of care separately, put a veteran up in a hotel and Uber them back and forth, but it doesn't work because if I was coming to your group and you were treating me for PTSD, I could hold it together pretty well for an hour, but you don't see what happens afterwards and I may not even be aware of it. During their time here, there's a mix of clinical treatments. The evidence-based therapies, evidence-based therapy is a therapy for which there are data, it's been studied, and it's shown to have a positive effect in terms of outcome if you follow the guidelines in the sort of the manualized program. Um, the main ones that we use are prolonged exposure, which is reliving the experience in a therapeutic environment after learning ways of managing the heightened emotion and anxiety that comes up, um, and, uh, and, and finding that you kind of retrain the nervous system to not have be triggered it quite as much. Beyond PTSD, the staff also works to treat what's known as moral injury, when a veteran may have done something against her morals or failed to stop something that goes against her deeply held beliefs, all part of the treatment to get them back to hopefully thriving in life. The center part of treatment, the middle, middle couple of months, is really skill acquisition, and that where is where we can provide new therapies, um, focus on other issues that we need to help with, like vocational services and financial services, and health care, just general health care, as well as mental health treatment, um, and begin looking at stable outcomes. So where are they going to live and how are they going to spend their time? Are they going to go to school and are they going to work? 
And the last phase of treatment is really that transition. I think that's where we shine. Because the ideal would be for a veteran who's in treatment with us in that last phase is to begin doing all the things they would do when they leave while they live here. It's about creating human connections. Experts come in to teach more than woodworking, but also finances and other skills. Uh, executive recruiter for Exxon, who flies in from Hawaii to do this volunteer work. Two financial planners who come in and give their time. And as part of that vocational academy, the outcomes show that we've, we, we get forgiven just shy of a million in debt for these veterans a year. I've come to understand that as suicide prevention. If you're talking me off the ledge, so to speak, that's pretty late in the game. And I think we really need to look at what we've tried to do here is move further upstream. And really, I see that what the Vocational Academy is doing is suicide prevention. Because by going through that process, they now don't have debt, their credit scores up so they can even apply for housing they could never even think of applying for before because their credit score was so bad. They're stable in terms of their finances. They've even had, we have one guy who's putting together a small business plan that he's presenting to Tucson, to the Chamber of Commerce, and looking at financing down there for a sustainable farming, um, farm to table for a restaurant industry, because he's kind of knows that stuff. Um, and, and so to me, that puts together sort of the, the, the foundation or a stable platform on which you can layer on treatment. So this is uh, on the male side, um, rooms are the same, bunk with uh, lifts so they can stow underneath, an armoire, a desk. The rooms look like small hotel rooms with a separate wing for women, their hangout and video game areas, a demonstration kitchen where veterans learn how to cook, and gardening, all with the goal of helping the residents overcome their trauma. It's how do you create a life that is rewarding, and it's, that's more than getting rid of a symptom. Um, or reducing a diagnosis. It's really how do I retool myself to be uh, the kind of person that I, that I want to be. And so it involves all these other activities um, that we try and provide during the course of the time we're here. We're very fortunate because we're a homeless program. We have a longer length of stay. And so we can make some pretty, these guys can make some pretty profound changes, guys and gals. If you're a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line to receive 24-7 confidential support. You don't have to be enrolled in VA benefits or health care. Dial 988 and press 1. Chat online at veteranscrisisline.net or text 838-255. Women make up roughly 17% of the U.S. military. Since 2001, they've been on the front lines of the global war on terror and face many of the consequences of combat. Here's ABC's John Capitaneus with a veteran who is channeling her creative side to help heal the wounds of war. PTSD is your human reaction to extraordinary circumstances. Jenny Pakanowski wears a number of hats. She's a veteran, a mom, a martial artist, a writer. After college, Jenny enlisted in the Army, serving as a medic. Before long, she was on the front lines of combat in Iraq. One of the first things I did in Iraq that I think added significantly to the severity of my post-traumatic stress disorder was we went into a town with our ambulance and we did a med cap with the kids. So we did physicals and we gave them cough drops and like little medicines and stuff. One of my very first interactions in Iraq were with the children. So then now I'm on convoys and I'm, I'm racing in between these bases through these towns, scanning for children or bombs. And then when I came back, those two things meshed together and children to me were bombs. So there's so much gray that it's like, you can't even, it's a fog of gray. You can't see anything. What is that like being in that place for so many months? Turning it on is surprisingly easy, especially after the training we received. Turning it off is, uh, is something I struggle with daily. <laughs> And that's why uh, some veterans, including myself, can seem distracted or disconnected or all those things because decisions become debilitating. I've done like 20 years of therapy on my brain, but my body still remembers. Finding inner peace became a constant struggle, but Jenny is not one to ever give up. Channeling her creative side, she founded a community of artists and writers determined to make a difference in the lives of fellow veterans. In finding a community, in writing about these experiences, did you feel like you were taking some of the, that power back? Oh, yeah. I was getting my identity back. So because I was in a war and I'm a human, I feel this way. I am hurt by it. I am 
affected by it. And I use how it affects me in my work, in my poetry, in my teaching. What do you learn about yourself about the words that come out onto that page? It's like meeting myself for the first time, no matter what mood I'm in too. I'm like, oh, that's how I'm feeling. That's what I'm dealing with. That's what's underneath all the rage or the sadness or the smile or whatever it is. And I can see it. And we're holding this space, not carrying each other's burdens, but we're listening empathetically. We're just, we're reframing everything to help help people thrive. The story, here's the key to your son's car. <laughs> This is the moment that took a gold star mother from grief to all-out emotional joy. You can have your car back. When her world, which had been turned upside down, seemed for a moment to make more sense. It's nice to know that there are people in the world that have good hearts. That was the voice of Candida Tori. He was 21 years old and full of life. He was Candida's son, Jose. Jose Tori Jr. was an Army specialist stationed in Kansas. He was very charismatic. He loves sports. He was known to fellow soldiers as something other than Jose. Maybe he was out in the field and they didn't know, you know, they, there was no TV and he would be like, hey, tell me what the score is because I got money writing. You know, my daughter was like, I am not at home. He's like, well, look it up, Google it, hurry up. Hence being how he got the name Google. Because if Jose did not know it, he Googled it. But before he was known as Google growing up, his family called him Joey. His mom looking over old newspaper clippings as we sat together in the booth Tori would always choose at a diner down the street from his home. He was sassy. Went to local elementary, junior high school, and then Pacific High School. He just, you know, he played baseball and he played uh, top horn, pop warner. Um, when he got into high school, he didn't, he didn't want to play um, baseball. He played baseball all his life, but he didn't want to play baseball anymore, so he wrestled. A pretty much expert wrestler in high school, the top guy, he was a life of the party everywhere he went. Tory didn't want to be locked down in a job. In 2009, when he was 18, Tory joined the Army. He came home and he says, Mom, I joined the Army, and I said, okay. Candida says she was okay with it. Other members of the family, not so much. In 2009, fighting was underway in Iraq and Afghanistan. The dangers were apparent. My husband didn't like it. He wouldn't talk to him, you know. He tells me, he says, we're in war, are you fool? You know, and he said it not like that, but, you know, he says, don't you know what can happen to you? And he says, yeah. He goes, but I want to make a difference. While he was growing up in California, Tori saw a friend shot, prompting him to join the Army. And he said, if people are going to shoot at me, I want to shoot back. He said, I don't want to, I don't want to live like this no more. He says, I, I want to join the Army. So I asked him why the Army, and he says, because we're Army strong. And he was Army strong. Tori became a combat engineer. His family says when he arrived in the Army, he was a child and quickly became a man. It was January 15th of 2011 on his second deployment when it happened. 21 years old, assigned to the Special Troops Battalion, 2nd Heavy Brigade Combat Team, 1st Infantry Division out of Fort Riley, Kansas. His unit was in Baghdad. It had stopped after an IED was detected. When he got out of his vehicle, he was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade. The day that Jose was killed, I was actually in my living room making a lay for a coworker from my husband that he worked with that we were going to his services the next day. And that week, two other people that we loved dearly had passed away. On Monday, Wednesday, I spoke to Jose Thursday, and then Saturday, Jose had passed. The Tory family was told he was gone. We didn't ever think we'd get that knock on the door because he was a tough kid. We never thought we would get that knock because he was good at what he did and he was tough, man. As Tori's body arrived back in California from Iraq, the streets were lined with people saluting. Some had hands over their hearts. A hometown hero was gone. I was really, really proud of him. Not just because he was an American soldier and that he was now an American hero, but I was really proud of him because of the things that he did out of the kindness of his heart for what he gave, not just for who he was. After his passing, Candida held on to what she could of Jose's, anything with his smell, with his memory, including his car, a 2009 Nissan Cube. Inside it, she kept the extra army hat she found under the front seat. So it was a good thing because we never got any more 
like the one that he had on when he was killed, they, they didn't give it to us. This is the only one that we had, and it's so stinky and smelly. But she loves that smell. Also inside the car, his medals, pins, and patches. This was actually from him. This is um, the combat engineer, and this is one of his, one of the, this would be one of the pins that he would wear on his uniform shirt. Holding on to what she had left of him, Candida began driving Jose's car because it felt like a piece of him was with her. But then in 2015, that connection to her son was pulled away from her as she was driving in nearby Huntington Beach. I thought the light was yellow and because the sun was in my eyes and it was red and I ran into a guy. The airbags went off. Luckily, nobody was injured, but the cube was pretty much gone. But then her angel appeared. John Bags and I'm with the Huntington Beach Police Department. Officer Bags, now Sergeant Bags, Candida just calls him John, pulled up on scene and noticed something about Candida's car. At the time I had gold star plates. Me and John were talking and I says, no, you don't understand. You know, this was my son's car and I'm a gold star mom. And he goes, no, I understand. I'm a gold star son. I said, I, you know, I, I totally understand what you're going through. I go, you know, I'm a gold star. Uh, member myself and I she says I'm so sorry for your loss you know and I thought gosh here I am uh, this woman's dealing with a car accident which is emotional enough you know but then the fact that she took the time to sit here and say I'm so sorry for your loss so that oh, this is a special woman she really cares says, I'm so sorry I says you know when did your dad pass and he says well, my dad was in Vietnam and I says oh my gosh I says I'm so sorry I says welcome home because our Vietnam vets were not welcomed home properly. And being a Gold Star mom, whenever I meet a vet or a family member that was a vet that has passed, I always welcome them home no matter what. The two went on their way. Insurance took over paying out Candida the few thousand dollars a cube was worth. Sergeant Bags went on to other calls. But there was something about that accident scene that stuck with him. Because she was pretty shaken up. And I said, you know, I need to get your license and registration, insurance, and all that information for my report. I remember going inside her car and seeing all of the medals that uh, her son, Jose, had earned. And I thought, wow, this is really, you know, it was impactful. I was like, wow, was, you know, it was gut-wrenching. Doing something not every officer would do behind the scenes, Sergeant Bags got to work. I reached out to AAA, and my goal was to just tell them the backstory. And I thought maybe if they knew that and it was on the border of being repaired or totaled, it might push it in the this way of, hey, let's repair this thing. And uh, they told me they had already paid her off and that the settlement was done. But once I did explain the whole story, the guy was like, oh, my gosh. And I said, well, I tell you what, I'd like to to buy the car if I could. And I figure, you know, if it's a couple grand to buy this car, maybe I could do that. And then I'll go around to some shops and say, hey, can you help me put this car together? This is where we're at. AAA ended up gifting Sergeant Bags a car, saying he could have it, but he still had to figure out how to get it fixed. So then I started spending part of my shift, don't tell my boss, but spending part of my shift driving to some, some auto repair shops, kind of explaining what I was doing. And, uh, you know, a couple surprisingly weren't interested. But he found one that was. And then I got a call from uh, Dave Goldstein with Caliber Collision, and I, I call it the golden call. Caliber Collision, a well-known company in numerous states, said their techs would volunteer their time to fix the cube. They would make it like new. But before moving forward, he tracked down Candida's son in Arizona to get approval. To say, hey, can, can you just, would it be okay if I did this? Because I thought maybe part of it was she's been holding on this, and maybe it'd just be a little wouldn't be a reminder for her every day it might be some closure I don't know where she was at in the healing process and 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 I didn't you know I didn't want to upset the family but her family without Candida knowing said yes then the work began my name is Juan Reyes um, I was uh, at the point at that time I was a disassemble reassemble team manager Reyes and his fellow techs offered their own time they stayed late they worked on their days off to rebuild the car I mean we actually got that car and, and, and we looked at the vehicle what it was and, and, and like I'm saying I, I, I told my team exactly what we were, what we were gonna do and for who we was doing it for so they were more than happy and willing to do it at, at, at no, no problem. It took about a month of grinding pounding and reassembly so when the vehicle came in I mean it was completely destroyed from the front. Um, once we did a full estimate of what we needed, including tires, rims, I mean, from bumper to fenders to inner structure to seats to carpet to, I mean, we just went all around the whole car. I mean, we painted the whole car. Dents that were around the car, we, faint, we, we, we fixed every single dent on the vehicle. Many of the parts were donated by dealerships and distributors. Everybody chipped in to help. Gabby Jimenez in the front office at Caliber Collision organized the whole thing on their end. It was nice to see, you know, 
a lot of people coming together for a good cause. The car was put back together. There was one addition that they added, Tori's tattoo. So the tattoo, we got a photo of it. I believe he had it on his arm, if I'm not mistaken. And um, we took that to the vendor and got that kind of like a decal sticker and put a couple in between, you know, the inside of the vehicle, the outside, just as a reminder to her. A little piece of her, her boy is in there as well. Then after weeks of working on the car, it was time for the big reveal, all orchestrated by Sergeant Bags. It was Veterans Day. Candida Torrey thought she was going to a Veterans Day ceremony, but she didn't know she was actually about to get back a piece of her son. It's with a heavy heart and with great <laughs> honor. You know, I was really worried because uh, I'm kind of a, a softy when it comes to stuff like this, and I didn't want to fall apart or start crying or this and that. And I think I did pretty well. I got through about 95% uh, of the speech before I started crying, but it was cool. It was really, really cool. And, and then all of a sudden the car comes around and comes right down the center of the heliport there. Then he said, I may not be able to give you back your son, but I can give you back a part of it. And that's when he drove, they drove the car in. Candida buckled over on the hood of the car in tears. It's been real emotional. She was just blown away. It was really cool, really cool. And her family was there. It couldn't have gone any better. It was really just a sweet moment. And you know, at the time, several, several people that worked at our police department had kids uh, that were deployed overseas. So it was just a, a really moving ceremony. The really cool thing is after this all unfolded, and I got to take a breath and kind of, I got so many, I got, I got, I got emails at my work from cops in Australia, for, uh, Mounties in Canada. I mean, it was like, what is, I, you know, what did I do? He did a lot. Candida still drives the car. This is the vehicle, huh? This is it. Wow. Inside is that hat that belonged to Jose and his pins. On the back, the image of his tattoo that those mechanics put on it and a gold star emblem. Sometimes I go to Los Angeles to the flower mart and I fill the back of it up with flowers and I go to the cemetery, uh, Riverside National Cemetery, that's where he's buried. And I go to just a bunch of graves and I put flowers. Today, Sergeant Bags is a big part of Candida's life for giving her back a piece of her son. He's my hero. When I, when I think of John, I think of him as a hero. He's a hero. He saves lives. He protects people. And he does the same job my son did. It's just here. Waging war is in large part a young person's pursuit. The Americans we remember had a whole life ahead of them and they gave it up for a lofty call to win a revolution, to preserve the republic, to ensure a heritage of freedom. We conclude this hour with tributes to them, paid at Arlington National Cemetery by American presidents. We gather today Mark Memorial Day in America. To honor the thousands of young men and women. Today, as a nation, we undertake a sacred ritual to reflect and remember my fellow Americans. This morning we join, as we always do on this day, to honor the sacrifices that have made our nation free and strong. Today is the day we put aside to remember fallen heroes and to pray that no heroes will ever have to die for us again. It's a day of thanks for the valor of others. It's a day to be with the family and remember. This Memorial Day weekend, kids will be out of school, moms and dads will be firing up the grill, and families across our country will mark the unofficial beginning of summer. But as we do, we should all remember the true purpose of this holiday to honor the sacrifices that make our freedom possible. Let every nation know, whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, to assure the survival and the success of liberty. America's beloved daughters and sons who dared all, risked all, and gave all to preserve and defend 
an idea unlike any other in human history. The idea of the United States of America. All across our nation, small towns are holding quiet Memorial Day ceremonies. Proud veterans are pinning on their medals. Children are laying wreaths. Men and women in uniform everywhere stand a little bit taller today as they salute the colors. I'm honored to be with you once again pay our respects as Americans to those who gave their lives for us all. Thank you for joining us as we honor the brave warriors who gave their lives for ours, spending their last moments on this earth in defense of this country and of its people. This has been a special presentation from ABC News. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.